Hey folks, this episode of Brown and Out was recorded live from the Let Equality Bloom Activism Festival. So naturally, we encountered a few audio challenges. For instance, you can hear a bathroom hand dryer going off. Twice. We hope you will forgive us and appreciate you experiencing the interview as you usually would. You have to look after the bag. I don't, what does that mean? Reggie, explain. Hey folks, and welcome to Brown and Out. Today we're talking to Dale Sargent. Whoop whoop! Whoop yeah! <laughs> How's it going, Dale? Absolutely fantastic. I'm part of the way through my cup of coffee. I'm hanging out with Reggie. It's a great day. Good, I'm so happy you're so enthused. Would you tell the folks where we're recording from today, Dale? We are at... 20 Allen Street in Burlington, which, if you don't know, has a lot of things going on. There's like a theater upstairs, there's like a meeting space, I believe the family center is over here. I'm looking at this door for Robin's Nest Preschool. It's really a catch-all for things in Burlington. But we're here today specifically because what's going on? Um, what, sir? Um, I believe it is the Let Equality Bloom Festival, which is, is put on by the lovely humans at the Women's March of Vermont. And we're just out here partying. Yeah, it's truly a rager. What are some things that folks should know about you? Um... I am a born and raised Vermonter, contrary to popular belief. Yeah, a lot of people don't believe me. They look at me and they're like, you can't be from Vermont because I have melanin in my skin. Oh no. Um, I am a preschool teacher and I'm very damn proud of that. It's also like half of my personality. If you need any quirky animal facts or someone to do like a very accurate monkey sound, I'm your girl. Um, I also have two sisters and they are my absolute best friends. And I went to UVM for my undergrad. Okay. You're really out here. I try. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. Well, let's start with being born and raised in Vermont. Was that chill? Define chill. <laughs> no, um, it was kind of tricky. I've actually, my sisters and I have a lot of conversations about it, like what it was like being a person of color in Vermont. We grew up in South Burlington, which is a pretty homogenous area. It's bougie AF. It is. If you want to find, like, go car looking, find like your Mercedes or Audis, that's the spot to go. You'll find a Tesla too. It's literally 40% car dealerships, isn't it? It is. It's really bad. So there's like that whole thing going on. Um, the socioeconomic status, people are pretty wealthy overall in comparison to a lot of other parts of Vermont and pretty white. And so we grew up in that area being like the only people of color in our neighborhood. We had a lot of incidents growing up, like explaining race to our friends and explaining like what's okay and what's not okay. And like, it's a good idea to ask before you touch my hair. That kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. That sounds like a drag. It 
At some points it was. It, I think it prepared me very well for life and that I now understand that like half the time when I go out and I'm in new settings or in settings where people aren't typically accustomed to seeing a person of color that I'm going to be the one kind of educating and playing that role of like helping people to understand things that they haven't been exposed to. You feel like you've accepted that role? Sadly, I have in with like certain I guess qualms almost. <laughs> so, like if there's if I'm talking to someone I'm having a conversation and they're listening, they're accepting, they're taking information in, then I feel okay like being the role of the educator and like explaining things to them. But for the people who are kind of set in their ways and think like, oh no, this is the world, I don't understand what you're saying, um, you only got into college because of affirmative action, that kind of stuff, then I feel a lot less willing to kind of inform people. Richie, you're making some hardcore facial expressions right here. <laughs> so, people have told you that you've you got into college, into UVM. Yes. Because, because of, of affirmative, affirmative action. action. Yes. Do you care to expound on that? Um, what that feels like? Not great. I was, it was my freshman year of college. I was in my dorm, hanging out with all like my dorm mates, you know, just starting to get the vibe of what college is like. And we're all talking and this one kid looked at me and he goes, yeah, like we all know why you got into here. And I was like, why? What, like, I don't understand what you mean. And he said, well, you're black. So like, that's how you got into UPM. They wanted diversity. You got here because of affirmative action. And like, he, he didn't believe me. I was like, yeah, I had shit SAT scores, but you should have <laughs> my essay. It was amazing. And I got into this program because I'm passionate about education and I want to be an educator. And they could tell that. So they accepted me into this program and I'm thriving here because I'm passionate, because I care. So even if affirmative action is what got me through the door, that's irrelevant because I have a lot to add to this school and to this program. And he's sitting over there with his business major bullshit trying to tell me that like, oh no, I'm gonna do so much more great stuff for the world and I just, I wrote him off. I. I didn't really have conversations with him after that. I didn't interact with him. And then I actually moved out of my dorm eventually because the floor I lived on, I called it the most Republican floor in all of UVM. Like a lot of people said stuff like gay rights are a state issue and like that doesn't really matter. And I remember feeling like, oh my God, I'm 18 years old, I've gone back into the closet to come to college, and I don't feel safe as a person of color, and I'm paying money to live here. So I moved home, and I lived with my mom for the next semester, because I, like, I couldn't do it. I didn't feel physically or emotionally safe. 
So if that's your experience, like just imagine how many more other people have the same or worse experiences. That's the thing. I'm like, I count myself lucky because throughout all of this, I've had my sisters who've had similar experiences. Though they don't identify as queer, they do identify as women of color. My older sister was a bio major at UVM and was like one of two women in her graduating class. And just like a total badass goes out there, does what she wants, and like is taking, not taking no for an answer from anybody. And so to like have her as a role model and to be able to connect with her and talk about like how it felt to sit in a class and every time they talked about diversity or people of color, have the whole class turn around and look at you because we were the only people of color in a class of 100 or 200 people. So, like, having And you that, were only there for affirmative action. I was only there for affirmative action, so, I mean, it's fair. Um, but to have someone to be able to connect with about that was really, really helpful, because I, I don't know how I would have gotten through if it was just me, if I didn't have a sibling or something like that to turn to, to say, like, this sucks. I was an early childhood special education major at UVM. It was a program of, I believe, like 10 or 11 girls, no men. Um, there was another queer person in my major. She was my girlfriend. Um, so, like, I had her to connect with on the whole queer thing, and she, like, that was pretty much accepted, like, within our major, but I was really, like, one of the only people of color and there was one other girl who was Asian and like it was just us and we never talked to each other about what it was like and what it was like going to become a teacher knowing that I believe like 70% of teachers are white. Do you um, just want to speak to that for a second about um, the fact that uh, it's much needed and much, <clears throat> it's lacking um, people of color in roles, like in teaching roles yeah. for all of the kids out there who <laughs> aren't white <laughs> and need that. Like, what, can you speak to that for a little bit? Like, what's up with that? I can. Um, I, so I'm a preschool teacher in Winooski. For people who don't really know the demographic of Winooski, it's one of the more diverse areas in like Vermont. There's a large refugee population and a large new American population. So like within my preschool class of 15, we have three kids who speak Swahili as their first language, two kids who speak Nepali, and three who speak Mai Mai as their first language. And everyone in my class is below the federal poverty line because I teach for Head Start. So that is already a more diverse classroom than you are going to see anywhere. And in so, most of Vermont. In most of Vermont, and in a lot of places in the country as well. And we also have students who are on IEPs, which is an individualized education program. So that means they're receiving special education services for speech or developmental delays. So that's also something that you don't always see as much of in preschool age programs. Um, unless they're intentionally set up to support children and make sure they're getting special ed services. So you've got that whole dynamic going, and then all of your teachers 
are these like lovely, well-intentioned <laughs> white middle-aged women, and they're doing they're doing great work, and they love those kids, and they're happy, and they're happy to do that work, but they don't understand necessarily. The other day, I there's a paraeducator I work with, and she's amazing. She's been doing this work for so long. She's a white middle-aged woman, and she's very good at being a white middle-aged woman. But the other day, one of my kids got off the bus, and she looked at her, and she said, she's not in our class. I don't know who this is. This kid's not in our class. And I looked, and I said, no, that's blah, blah, blah. She's in our class. And she goes, no, she's not. I, I don't know who this kid is. So I was like, look at the jacket. Look at the backpack. This kid has been in our class every day for the past two weeks. She just got braids. So like stuff like that gets missed. A lot of names get mispronounced. Stuff like that. And in my classroom, I come down hard on you for that shit. Like if you're gonna say a kid's name wrong, I will correct you every single damn time. Because their name is a part of who they are and there is nothing that they should do to change it or alter it to make it easy for you to say. Because if they can figure out how to say your name, you can figure out how to say theirs. And so bringing that like edge and that knowledge of like how it feels to have someone disrespect you and to kind of say like, oh, your name, whatever, it, it doesn't matter. Let me just say it however is comfortable for my tongue. Let me, you know, totally forget that not only are you a student coming to preschool and being away from your parents for the first time, but you speak not a word of our language and we're here barking orders at you. So bring that perspective to people and to explain like look this is not okay like you have to feel for these children otherwise you can't be here and it's kind of a rude awakening for a lot of people because no one's trained to do this work in that capacity with this grouping of children it's like it doesn't you don't see it so they don't train you for it luckily at UVM I was trained for it but no one's trained, if you're not trained for it and it's not something you've experienced, it's hard. I watch the little kids of um, like the black kids and the poly kids get in trouble more often than their white peers because their behaviors are perceived as being like more dangerous by a lot of adults who just come into the classroom. Black kids are suspended at a much higher rate in preschool because their behaviors are perceived as more negative than their peers. And so to have someone there to interrupt that train of thought and say, wait, what if this kid broke this toy? Not because they wanted to break this toy, because they wanted to see how it was put together. Like, let's look at that. Let's examine that and kind of take things from that route. What if maybe this child is having a freak out and throwing a trash can at you right now because they've experienced so much trauma in their life that they don't feel safe anywhere. So let's take a step back and instead of saying, I'm mad at this kid for possibly hurting me, say, I'm sorry that you don't feel safe and how do I change that for you? Does that speak to it? <laughs> you are, <clears throat> you're speaking to so many things. I do that when I talk about education. <laughs> I, I think it's wonderful. So I might, I might try to break it down for my simple mind. Go for 
Head Start. Yes. So you, you work for Head Start. Can you, you just tell us a little bit about what that is? So Head Start was originally started, I believe, in like 1964 as a poverty fighting program. So it was like initiative to help poor families um, get themselves above the poverty line. So they offered childcare for children and support services for the families. So we help hook families up with job training if they want it. Um, I spend a lot of my time finding diapers for family because diapers are really, really expensive. So helping families to find diapers um, that are either donated or cheap or getting them connected with local food banks or finding just natural resources within their community to help support their day-to-day lives so that they can then go on to hopefully no longer be living in poverty and that way it's not such a drain on the system that was the original intent of head start and throughout the years it's kind of been skewed and now it's mostly viewed as free childcare. but we're still doing all that other work around supporting families with social services that's half my day half my day i teach in the morning and i hang out with really cool preschoolers and we blow bubbles and build legos and shit and then the other half of my day, I get on the phone with the Howard Center and I make referrals for behavior and I call the food bank to double check the hours that they're open and I make calendars for families. I came up with a whole schedule for a mom who didn't know how to tell time so she could get her kid on the bus sometime. Like that's what I do. It's not just the kid, it's the whole family. So anything a family needs, like I'm there. I'll show up at IEP meetings for their other kids if they want me there. I'll show up wherever they want. If you don't want me to come do a home visit, cool, I'll meet you at the library. You don't want to meet at the library because it's not an easy place for you to get to, I will sit out on your front stoop and hang out with you and chat there. You can't make it to a meeting because you work crazy hours, cool, I'll meet with your kid's grandmother and because I know that they're as much a part of this child's life as you are and we'll hang out and we'll chat and we'll brainstorm ideas and when your kid needs to go to the dentist but you forgot their appointment i'll send you home a reminder of the day and the time and where and the phone number and who to call and if you have any questions call me and i can help sort them out i'll help get you set up with WIC. i'll make sure that if you can get fuel assistance you're getting it three squares reach up whatever i'm there yeah. So that's, that's, that's Head Start. <laughs> Just a quick little ditty about what we do. So I'm getting kind of like happy that you exist. Oh, shucks. <laughs> and I, I feel like the world needs a trillion more of you. But I'm also getting upset because I feel like we're just talking about when it comes down to it, like money allotment. If there were enough money <clears throat> towards Head Start, mm-hmm. you wouldn't need to do as much. You wouldn't, you know what I mean, need to like maybe feel so pulled in so many different directions. So I guess I want to pivot into politics. Oh. Well, I don't know. Because okay, what it makes me think of is like, these are, this is the next generation, right? Mm-hmm. And if we were saying so vocally we don't have money to invest in them, mm-hmm. but in other things, I don't know. I mean, like, 
Where are your politics at? <laughs> They're very liberal, bordering on socialists. That's where my politics are at. Um, I remember in college finding out that every dollar you invest in early childhood education um, comes back as like $7 later on. So like it gets not only doubled and tripled, but like it it is the best investment you could make. tupled. Thank you. Um, so, but yet early childhood ed is not, it's getting more support, especially in Burlington. Like our mayor is putting a bigger emphasis on it, um, stuff like that. And a lot of politicians in the Burlington area are seeing that like early childhood ed, early childhood special ed, that's where you're gonna see the biggest supports. Like you find a preschooler whose family maybe isn't doing that great or they have a speech delay or maybe they walk pigeon toed or something like that and you help support them early on when they're three or four or even younger than that, then you don't have to spend all that money later on in high school when they're showing challenging behaviors because they've been like holding this in their whole life. So that's in part why my politics are very liberal because the people who are valuing the same things as me and seeing that like if we invest this money now we don't have to invest it later in like a punitive way they're they're liberal they're socialist shout out to bernie <laughs> um so i i skew very much that way also they're the only people not trying to defund my job <laughs> So, I like that. Nicki Minaj's new album, like, it's pretty good. I'm, I'm getting like a little sick of it because I've over listened to it. But I just love how much she talks about getting her pussy eaten. And like com comedians like Ali Wong, I don't know if you saw her special Hard Knock Wife, but she talks about how like she made her husband like bespoke to her by like teaching him properly how to eat her pussy. She's like, there's many nights where like, I wanted to just like fake an orgasm and be done with it. But I said, no, this is an investment in my future. And like women need to look at it that way. Like I had a conversation with my sister's roommate the other day about it. Cause he was, he was- On some DJ Khaled shit? On some DJ Khaled shit. He was a blessed man, he got to have a threesome. I was like, congratulations to you, sir. That's amazing. And then he was telling me about how like one of the girls did this thing that like blew his mind. He was like, I didn't even know you could eat pussy like that. And I was like, no, that's like a standard move. Like what, what the fuck have you been doing? And he's like, girls like it when I go down on them. I'm like, okay, I'm sure they do. But I can tell you, I've personally faked it multiple times in the hopes that maybe that person would go down on me again. He's like, shit, so they might not even like it. I was like, oh my God. You're so new to this, like you don't even understand. And I was like, I need to like hang out with you. We need to have like a full conversation. I feel like I need to get like a diagram, do a whole workshop on how to properly eat pussy. I'm actually going to do that with one of my friends in a couple weeks. We're like hanging out, so. Do you want to plug that right now? So it's like, it's just in my house. So my coworkers and I, we all get together and we do these things called crunk night, where usually we just like get drunk and we complain about like hard things at our job. So, this particular, like a couple weeks ago, my coworker confided in me that her husband hasn't gone down on her in a little while. And we're like, oh, we are going to change that. So we're brainstorming ways to passive aggressively tell him to go down on her. 
And I told her like that she's gotta like stop giving him head. You gotta like send him a lot of videos. I was like, send him a ton of porn, but it's all pussy eating. Like that's it. That's all the porn is, is pussy eating. And then he's just gonna sit there and be like, damn it. And then clearly getting a message. And I was like, and then he just gets a buffet and it's gonna be great. And so we're having like a night where we're gonna like have a whole conversation about like, this is what you do, this is what you don't do. This is how you get mad at him when he's not doing it properly, like that whole shit. But like also complain about our jobs and how they make us tired and then probably get really fucked up and go to Red Square. Red Square. Red Square or as my roommate called it, side boob, aka sidebar. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Well. Because I like to dance. Badly, but I like to dance. If I go like out and I'm like trying to dance, I go to yeah. Red Square or Sidebar. Yeah, Sidebar. 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 I want to be ratchet. It's fun. Red Square if I'm trying to be a bit more classy and on a Friday night. Cause At DJ Red Craig Square? Yeah. At Red Square, more classy? DJ Craig Mitchell. Friday nights. I don't know if Shout out DJ Craig Mitchell. Oh, DJ Craig Mitchell, I love you. I want you to DJ my wedding. I'm not planning to get married anytime soon, but please DJ my wedding. Um, 2045. <laughs> Come like through. That. Something like that. Um, but yeah, no, he has like a good, a good mix. One time my sister. Love DJ Craig Mitchell. Yeah, one time my sister and I were in there and DJ Craig Mitchell spinning. We're in the red room. We're dancing. We're having a good time. He puts on This Is America and we're like, Oh shit! So we're going hard, it's great. And then he plays Formation and we're like, oh my god, the people were not ready for this. And then this very lovely, well-intentioned white girl comes up to us. We have never met her. And she's like trying to dance with us and she's like, ooh, ooh. And my little sister just stops, goes deadpan and goes, we have to fucking leave. I was like, what? She was like, the night's ruined, we have to fucking leave. And we leave it the whole time walking home. He's just going, fucking Burlington, man. Fucking Burlington. These fucking biddies, they're out here. Fucking Burlington. The whole time. Her daddy, Alabama. Yeah. Get, get, get woke, people. Get woke. Mama, Louisiana. You mix that Creole. Well, but then that's where white people have to stop singing the lyrics. They need to yeah. stop. It's not about that. It's just not. For once. Yeah. That was another fun conversation I had at work with a lot of people. Formation is not about you. Continue. Okay. This is a conversation we need to have. Formation is not about you and that's okay. Come on. Yeah. So just like everyone at work, they're trying to sing it. They're talking about their hot sauce in their bag, all that shit. And I was like, I can barely lay claim to this song as a girl who grew up functionally white in Vermont. I feel like I'm culturally appropriating a little bit when I sing this song. So what makes your brain think that like on a night when you're getting white girl wasted, that this is your anthem? There's a lot of great songs out there. I want everyone dancing to Formation because it's a jammer. I do. Just don't call it your, your anthem, your song, your jam, your shit, any of that. Unless you like have known the plight and the struggle of a person of color and truly do carry hot sauce in your bag. Are you about that life?
Do I carry hot sauce in my bag? I'm not pointing that towards you. I'm saying we should be asking ourselves. That's the thing. It's like, I don't carry hot sauce in my bag. So I feel like I'm not. I can't. I can't. I can sing it in the privacy of my own home. I can dance to it when I'm out. You know Ray Shremerd? No. You know Ray Shremerd? Like, uh, I ain't got no type. Oh, I do. Yeah. yeah. You know, um, Sway Lee from, he's one of the two. Okay. Um, he wrote Formation. Did you know that? I did not know that. Mm. Prodigy. Prodigy. <laughs> yeah. Listen. Okay. Listen. We're talking about turning up. Okay. There was an occasion I was hanging out with you, and you uh, mentioned something that I don't know if everyone's aware of. It's a phenomenon. I feel like it's popular among the youth. Okay. What is? Can you tell us what a darty is? Oh my god! <laughs> so, um, one night I bumped into Reggie, and I had been with a friend, and we were going to go to a darty. And I was fucking hyped because I thought Darty meant dinner party. And I was like, there's gonna be food. Let's go. I'm there. I'm ready. I'm in an almost cute outfit. Like, we're going. And I show up, and it means day party. It was five o'clock, y'all. And these motherfuckers had been partying all day. They were wasted in a not fun way, very sloppy. And I was unaware that the youth were going around talking about darties and going to darties all the time and that there was no food in sight. Not even a bowl of chips to satisfy a bitch. It was, it was, it was rough. So that's, that's what a darty is. I've never really taken place in a darty. It's not really my scene. Um, but yeah. You went to that one that one time. I went to that one one time for like 10 seconds. It was a there disappointment. Was, there was a girl there who thought Beyonce wasn't even that talented, so I left. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh my God, I love your face. Yeah. Yeah. So we're just like, we have to go. We're not. You got in leaving formation. Yes. Yes. Thank you for that question about darties. I had fully forgotten that we had that conversation. It was entirely relevant. <laughs> you know the game Two Truths and a Lie? No, tell us more. Okay, so it's this thing that like people used to do. I don't know if it started at sleepovers or what, but it soon became like a mainstream way to like introduce yourself in a large group of people in an educational setting. So the teachers would be like, alright, everyone tell two truths and a lie, and then people have to guess what the lie is. So I would tell like one truth, make up a lie, and then tell people that I was also Scottish. <laughs> I was part Scottish. No one ever picked that I was Scottish. They always picked that I was Scottish as the lie, but like no, I'm really like my my ancestors are from Scotland. Lion ass Scott. Yeah. So they um so that like that was like my first introduction into like people asking about your ethnicity and like how to stump them. And so like I I'd make it a game and make it fun. A lot of people ask if I'm from Spain, if I'm from Puerto Rico. Like, you Belizean? That's what I got. Belizean? Sorry, that's my thing. I'm projecting. Really? Oh. Yeah, but I get some interesting ones. It's like, no, my dad's from Barbados. That's as interesting as it's going to get. My mom's a lovely white lady from Barry, Vermont. From lovely Barry, Vermont. Lo that's the nicest thing I've heard anyone say about Barry. 
I mostly hear it called Scary Barry, and I think that's an accurate representation. Sorry, Barry. If you're in Barry, Vermont right now, I'm sorry. Shout out to Barry. You know, they try. <laughs> they are trying, though. That's, they've got like some stuff going up in their town center. Yes. They're becoming a little bit hipper, a little bit cooler. We will be posting about that soon. Really? Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> Do you have any other fun questions for me, Reggie? Any other gotcha journalism for the people? Literally 10,000 other fun questions. Do, do you want to hear my story? I want to hear three stories at least. Okay. Well, so the first one that comes to mind is I used to work at a preschool that was like fairly homogenous as most preschools are in Vermont because the majority of the population is white and most people who can afford to send their kids to childcare are making pretty good money because childcare is expensive. So homogenous could mean a lot of any one group, but we're definitely talking about white people yeah. to yeah. be clear. Yeah. Homogenous. Yes. Cause not every, you know, cause there might be a preschool that's like mostly black kids, yes. and that would also be homogenous. It would be homogenous. But your mind wouldn't go there. You, when yeah. you say homogenous, you're thinking of like. Typically, culturally white people with a fairly comfortable socioeconomic status. That's my definition of homogenous when I think of preschools. So this preschool was great. Like, they, they're amazing. They're one of the best preschools, and I learned so much working there. But there was this incident where um, we have baby dolls in the classroom, and every, every preschool has baby dolls in the classroom. But there was this one, like, blonde-haired, blue-eyed baby that all the kids would fight over. And they would literally, like, fight over this baby doll. And we took the baby dolls out because they were causing like such a fight and we're like, we gotta reintroduce this, like teach them like how to properly play with this thing without fighting over it. And so when we were reintroducing the baby dolls, I was like, can we not put this specific blonde-haired, blue-eyed baby out? And I got a lot of pushback from the teachers about how that baby doll needed to be out so that all of the kids in the classroom were represented. And I was like, I hear that, but I have yet to see a cute little blonde white girl um, not be represented in our country, and it causes me physical pain to watch the like two children of color in this classroom fight and scream and cry because they didn't get the good baby. And it's like it was changing my opinion of the children. I was having a hard time interacting. It was then like changing how I handled the situation, which I was recognizing like as a teacher is not okay because I was starting to like bring my own bias and my own prejudice into it. And I was like, that's not okay. And I was very much ignored. And I actually left crying that day and quit about a month later. Cause they couldn't really figure out what the doll issue was. They couldn't, they didn't quite understand how the doll issue was more than just kids fighting over baby dolls, that it was really about race and that it was about the fact that they needed to teach these children that all of the babies are beautiful and that they're all cute and that you can play with any baby doll. And like I've, I have baby dolls in my classroom, we're introducing them this week and I specifically chose baby dolls that represent the kids in our classroom 
and I tried to dress them in gender neutral clothing. And when I like play babies with the kids, I do not assign the babies a gender or a name until the kids do. I challenge when they give them a gender. So like if the baby's in pink and they say it's a girl, I'm like, oh, what makes you think it's a girl? And they'll say, oh, it's in pink. And I'll say, oh, boys can wear pink. That doesn't matter. Maybe it's not even a boy or a girl. Maybe it's something else. And I use they, them pronouns for like all objects in the classroom until the child assigns it a gender. Um, so to see like such a big difference in the philosophy of teaching where for me, I found it so important that not only is there this representation piece, but there's this challenge of why is this a good baby? Why isn't this really cute other baby the good baby? Why is there a good baby at all? And I know that they were going to get around to challenging that, but I just felt like it was not anywhere close to prioritized. Yeah, it's just so clear the stuff you're talking about and how um, there's a disconnect between the like the youngest children and their caretakers. How can we not assume that's going to carry over into adult life and exactly. then and then like you know become political, become mm -hmm. like about policy based on things they learned. In preschool, right, so. The norms in their preschool classroom. Yeah. I remember teaching in a preschool and they told me um, that we're like putting out clothes for the kids in the dramatic play area. It was just like a little kitchen. And you know, we had a lot of like silvery and gold and shiny, sparkly, glittery dresses. I was like, oh my God, is that fun to wear? I think everyone can identify that it is fun to wear glitter. And one of the teachers was like, we need some boy dress up. And I was like, what do you mean? She's like, we need, we need dress up for the boys. And I was like, I'm gonna challenge that and say like, why can't they wear the dresses? And they're like, their parents might not like that. And I was like, their parents are sending them to our school. In our classroom, you can wear whatever the hell you want. You wanna pretend that you're a girl for a few minutes so you can be the mom of a baby? Freaking great, that's what we're doing today. You wanna wear the gold sparkly dress? Do it. You wanna be a girl dressed as a cowboy? Then do it. Nothing is wrong. That's the only time in your life that you get to explore other things, step outside yourself, and really be able to be comfortable with it. And if that, at that age, we're already telling them, no, that's wrong, no, you don't do that, you're cutting off so many opportunities for them to decide later how they identify, what feels comfortable for them, and so on and so forth. I, well, it's just, you can't overstate how important that early, early, early education is. That's why I do it. It's not for the money, trust me. It's not <laughs> for the money. I do it because I see that that's are you? where I can make the most impact. Are you not a millionaire? This was the I'm not. This was the millionaire episode of Brown and Out. Shit, you got the wrong girl. <laughs> I yeah, no, I'm not a millionaire. I'm comfortable. <laughs> I also don't have children. Oh, she's I do comfortable. not have a mortgage payment. I do not have a car payment. So if you were to add those things in, it'd be <laughs> different. Yeah. Yeah. So mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Now is an awesome time to remind people that we're at the Let Equality Bloom Gosh Darn Activism Festival. Yeah, we are. Okay. <laughs> that being said, Dale, mm-hmm. how important is it for women, and especially women of color, to vote? Is it important? Does it even matter? I've got another story about this. I cannot wait. Oh my god! So, um, sad that you guys are listening to this podcast. So you can't see the gorgeous ring I wear on my ring finger on my left hand. Lovely. It belonged to my great aunt Eleanor. She was the resident badass of our family. She never got married. She was in the army as a nurse, and she traveled the world. And she did everything she wanted to do, and she didn't really listen to what everybody else said. And even in like the 1940s, you know, she was doing her damn thing and challenging gender norms and all that stuff. So I love my great aunt Eleanor very much, and she actually passed away um, last town meeting day. And my, that was the first town meeting day that I didn't um, vote actually because I was like, grieving so hard that I like, couldn't get to the polls. And my sisters and I did um, tequila shots, actually, at Daily Planet instead. Um, But we vowed after that that we would vote in every election because my great aunt, as a woman, viewed it as a very important thing to vote to the point where when she was in her late 80s and her vision was going and she'd stopped driving two, three years before... It was election day. She went to her neighbor. She knocked on their door and said, hey, are you still going to the polls? And they said, no, Eleanor, there's a snowstorm. I'm not going to the polls today. Like, I'm so sorry. You gotta have, you're going to have to find another ride. And she looked for a ride, and she couldn't find one because she was in Barry, Vermont. So she got in her Ford Taurus, her white 1995 Ford Taurus. She turned that engine... <laughs> She drove down the biggest hill in Barrie in a snowstorm and back up it to cast her ballot in the election because she was going to be damned if she didn't vote. And we said, we told that story at her um, funeral, actually, and vowed that in honor of her, we will vote in all elections because if she could fucking make it to the polls, then we sure as hell can. And... So like that's, I feel like, half of why it's important for women to vote. And then for people of color, there's like even that other layer of the civil rights movement and how long we were deprived of the right to vote and how long that was taken from us. And there are so many people who fought and literally died so that we could vote. And I feel that if you don't, it's like slapping them in the face and saying like, what you did wasn't worth my time to go cast this ballot. So it's like a pretty big thing for me. And I think voting is hugely important. And though I'd like to say that like, I only want liberal people going out (laughs) to vote and stuff like that, that's not why we vote. We vote so that everyone's voice is heard. And if you want your voice heard, head to the polls or cast an absentee ballot. Because that is a beautiful option if you don't want to wait in line or maybe you work till six or seven o'clock. There's options. Also, I've been told that Vermont recently 
uh, now allows you to do same-day voter registration. So for those of you who don't know, when you go to vote, you could register there so that you don't even have to take that extra step of registering to vote beforehand. No excuses. <laughs> what does black and brown queer culture in Vermont look like to you? Hidden. I, um, I have found some queer culture in Vermont. I found some black and brown culture in Vermont. But the intersectionality of it is limited. And um, it feels almost like a niche market, per se. And that's pretty hard. So there, I feel like there's very few times where I get to be queer and a person of color that I, like, I, I often choose what's appropriate for the venue. And sometimes it's neither. Would you care to elaborate on those <laughs> venues? Um, in academic settings, I often hide my color. Um, and then in interpersonal settings and professional settings, I often hide my queerness. So like if I'm at a conference or something for work, I tend to be a bit more muted about the fact that I date men and women. It's just like, I just, I let people assume what they want and don't challenge it as often as I should because it's easier. And when I'm in an academic setting, I hide my color because oftentimes people view that as ignorance and a lack of exposure to education. And so I kind of play, play up my whiteness as a way to, to blend in and be heard. Is hiding your color in academic circles um, sometimes about, like, hiding your activism? My activism shows through more than my color. I, it almost is like I'm, like, an activist, but as, like, an ally and not <laughs> um, actually a person of color. Hmm. Because I find, like, I, I try to relate to people a lot. Hmm. And I find it's hard to relate to people who aren't other people of color like they don't have that connection so to try and speak to that I feel like it almost distances you instead of being able to connect with that person and I use connection as a way to get what I want and what I need so it ends up being hidden or muted a lot and I'm working on being more comfortable with it I'm working on not just wrapping my hair when I'm going to the grocery store on a Sunday morning, but like also doing it to show up at work and like go on, like show up at a conference with, you know, like a huge ass headscarf and some shit like that. But it's hard. Can we talk about how radical hair can be? It's amazing. <laughs> I recently have had a whole hair situation because I got my hair cut. And it was, it was a bad haircut, y'all. I'm sorry for you. It's, it happens, but like I cried, it was so bad. And I remember being like, oh my God, no one can cut curly hair in Vermont. They can't cut like black women's hair. And my sister was like, wait, dude, I cut my hair. Come to my house, I'll cut your hair for you. So she cut my hair and now it's much, much shorter. This is the shortest my hair has ever been since I was a baby. 
And now I find that the ways I can style it are much blacker. Like, I more often have like a fro where like my curls are out. Like I can't hide behind my whiteness as much because it's harder to like put it up in a ponytail and stuff like that. So it's kind of forced me to like embrace that like my hair is curly. It does not look like most people's hair, but that's a good thing. Most white people's most hair. Most white people's hair, correct. And that like that's totally fine. And if people have an issue with that, that sucks for them. My hair is awesome. <laughs> Most certainly, it would be white people who would have an issue with yes. that. Yes. Yes. Okay. I've yet to find a black person who has an issue with my hair. Too curly. Too curly. I've had a lot of white people that tell me I should straighten it or like, have you thought about relaxing it? I remember when I first. Have they thought about relaxing? Um, not that I'm aware of. When I first got my hair cut really short, like before my sister fixed it, I was talking to my mom and my aunt about how like it was really sad because like my hair looked bad and I couldn't quite do anything with it. And my aunt said, you want it longer? Why don't you just relax it so it'll be long again? And I was like, you don't know the chemicals that are in that shit, do you? You don't know that that would fry my hair and would take me years to get it back to what it is. And I like my curls. If my hair's gonna be short, it's gonna be short, but it's gonna be curly. So, yeah, and it's my aunt. I love her, she's well-intentioned, but she didn't, she didn't know, because she has never had to relax her hair. Because why would she? She has beautiful blonde hair. <sighs> yeah. It's a lot up in there. <laughs> a lot. I remember last Thanksgiving, I wrapped my hair, because I didn't want to wash it, so I wrapped my hair to go to Thanksgiving. And I was like, I sent my sister a Snapchat. And I was like, are you ready for the passive aggressive microaggressions we're about to receive about my hair? And my sister had her hair in box braids and she sends me a picture back and goes, bitch, you know I'm ready. <laughs> so like we walked up to Thanksgiving like this is gonna be a shit show. <laughs> and how was Thanksgiving? I left crying, so <laughs> yeah. It was, it was a tough Thanksgiving because I was with people who were like, you know, I'd known them since my whole childhood and stuff like that, but I hadn't seen them in a while. And so that was, that was tough. They made some comments about the whole Harvey Weinstein thing that made me uncomfortable as someone who identifies as a survivor of sexual violence. Um, they made some comments about Trump that seemed like they didn't vote Trump, but it seemed like a little blase that made me uncomfortable that kind of thing so yeah i left thanksgiving early and sad but i vowed that this year i'm doing thanksgiving with my sisters <laughs> so i think that's called self-care i think it is and it's not something i'm an expert in but i'm trying to practice it more frequently that's all you can do mm-hmm all right. <laughs> All right, Dale. Okay. When do you feel most brown and out? When I'm around a whole bunch of straight white people is when I feel the most brown and out because I stick out like a sore fucking thumb. It's, um, yeah. So like those conferences that I go to where I'm like trying to hide my queerness and my color and shit like that. That's when I feel the most brown and out. And I'm working on like more often being like, 
Yeah, I eat pussy. Yeah, when I talk about my girlfriend, it's it's the girl that I'm fucking, not the girl that I casually hang out with on a Saturday and grab brunch with and lose lemon pants. It's different. And <laughs> that's when I'm trying to like let my my hair be like froed out and shit like that. But that is a hundred percent when I feel the most grounded out. When you're on the margins of yes. the, the main group. When yeah. I'm the fringe. I yeah. feel like fringe would suit you. I, fringe does suit me mm. very well. Yeah. I, I remember trying to be normal one day in like, I think it was like eighth grade or something. I was like, I'm going to be normal. It's great. I'm going to do it. I'm going to blend in. <laughs> no one's going to know anything. I was so fucking tired at the end of the day. Like, oh my God. I was like, this isn't going to work. I can't, I can't do it. I can't pull it off. So now I'm... Um, weird as hell i'm very loud it has not changed it's not going to i might get louder but that's it <laughs> i think to me it brings me somewhat like a little bit of comfort to realize that like um straight people cis people white people are also doing the same thing yeah they don't show you that they're like tired of performing all day because they have something like good to gain from it like mm -hmm. privilege is amazing like it i is. it's, it's a superpower fabulous but they don't yeah you you never hear that they're also tired of like mm -hmm. doing the same thing that we're tired of doing all the time which is like Blending. maintaining this image of normalcy or whatever also um what i meant to, i meant literally fringe I bet like fringe is a good look for you, like like a like a like a fringe. Yeah, like outfit. a vest oh. or like a jacket. Ooh, I need to look into that. Yeah, I need to look into that. Let's go shopping. <gasps> Thank you. Thank you so much for being on Brown and Out today, Dale. Oh, anytime, Reggie. I love an excuse to hang out with you. I loved your text this morning. Just. Today is our special day. Smiley face emoji. I was like, oh, good. He's excited. I'm fucking hyped. Yeah. So thanks for that. You're welcome. <laughs>